Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue through our series through the book of Colossians. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15 initially, and then on panel 5 we'll do 16 through 23. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He also, or he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So there was some interesting news back from my neck of the woods in Charlotte, North Carolina, this past week where you might say some worlds collided a little bit as a former seminary student of mine was named as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. His name is Frank Reich. He had been let go by the Indianapolis Colts earlier this season, just picked up by the Carolina Panthers, and Lord willing, he's going to do a great job. He has got a job in front of him. The reason Frank was hired is because the Carolina Panthers, my beloved team, has all kinds of issues, all kinds of difficulties. They have languished in mediocrity for the past seven or eight years. Too many problems to count. The defense is okay, but he was really coming, he was really brought in to do one thing. Uh, Frank Reich was a former quarterback. He is a former quarterback. Just a little trivia for you, for you sports fans. I may have mentioned this before years ago. Frank Reich is responsible for the two greatest comebacks in the history of football. Frank Reich was the quarterback for the University of Maryland in college, 
where it was the greatest comeback in college history, they beat Miami. And then for those of you who follow the NFL a number of years ago, Frank Reich was whose backup? Jim Kelly, good sports fan over here. If only we knew our Bible so well, that was instantaneous. Instantaneous. He was the backup to Jim Kelly. They were dying down to the Houston Oilers. Frank Kelly leads them back. Now he is manning the ship in Carolina. But as a quarterback, his one job, his main job, is to find a quarterback, to find a head to lead the team, to fix their offensive problems, and to lead them to new heights. That's his job. If he does that, if he finds a head, if he finds his quarterback, hopefully everything else will fall into place. Well, in a sense, I hope this is not blasphemy or a stretching of an illustration. Paul's like the general manager, okay, of the church in Colossae. He is administrating, he is ruling, he is shepherding from afar, and he wants to keep their eye on the ball. He wants to keep the focus of the church in Colossae on their head, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, fully God, fully man. He is the second person of the triune God in whom all of the fullness of God dwells. So that's what Paul is trying to do because like with my beloved Panthers, there are so many problems in Colossae. Hard for us to even relate to how many issues there were in trying to plant a church in the first century. There were more superstitions and cults and Greco-Roman mythologies and Jewish legalism. I mean, there was so much going on in Colossae. It's hard for us to imagine that because today people are not so much superstitious like they used to be. People would believe in anything in the first century. And so that accounts for what we have before us this morning. It's a very dense, complex portion of the Bible. And like I've said before, an adding complication is we're only hearing one side of the telephone conversation, okay? All we're hearing, all we're reading is Paul's response, Paul's encouragement to the church at Colossae, and so we have to try to infer the things that he's responding to. And in some cases, it's just absolutely impossible. There's no way to know exactly all of the things that he's trying to correct. Like, we know his answer, that's the good news. The answer to all of this, whatever the individual situation might be, is look to Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God Almighty resides in Christ. Don't get distracted with this or that bad teaching or bad doctrine. Look to Jesus. Hope in him, love him, serve him. That's what Paul is trying to do. So with that in mind, let's look at our text. Verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, he writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as what? As Lord. In other words, when you heard about him, the gospel was preached to you, it was preached to you that Jesus is very God, a very God. 
He is not only your Savior, He's your Lord. Continue with that understanding. Don't let these other claims about angel worship or other things diminish your view of Jesus. Don't let that happen. You received him as Lord. Continue with that understanding. He says, second half of six, continue to live your lives, what? In him. Not according to these other things, but in him. Rooted and built up, not in all of these Jewish mythologies or Greco-Roman um, mythological claims, but rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in faith as you were taught. Don't depart from the way that you were taught. Overflowing with thankfulness. And then in verse 8, he's even more specific. He puts a finer point on it. Here's the problem. Here's what he's concerned about. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now that term, philosophy, can also be defined as another religion. So Josephus, who was a Roman historian, he was also Jewish, but a Roman historian, he described the Pharisees and the Sadducees as subscribing to various philosophies. What he meant by that is they had these particular views on religion. And so looking at verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. In other words, don't get taken captive by these people who say you have to do these other religious practices. Okay? That's what he's talking about. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy or other religious practices, which depends on what? Now this makes a little more sense. Which depends on what? What does it say? Human tradition. Don't listen to these man-made rules. Don't listen to these people that are saying you need to worship angels or do these other things. Those are made-up human traditions. Again, keep your eye on the ball back to Jesus. For verse 9, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. At the risk of being redundant, that's his focus. Don't get taken captive with bad theology. Focus on Jesus. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're united to him by grace through faith, you have all that you need for the Christian life. You have all that you need for Christian maturity and growth if you have Jesus, okay? And then what he's going to do from there is he's going to prove that by showing you don't need any um, additional power from these cults who are maybe, and again, this is what's so hard. We don't know all that he's teaching against. We don't know what these folks in Colossae were saying. It's so foreign to our modern way of thinking, but they were basically saying, you need Jesus and these other things to live the Christian life. You need Jesus, but you need additional power to overcome sinful temptations. And Paul is going out of his way by saying, you've got all the fullness in Jesus, okay? You don't need any additional power. He's taking care of the penalty of sin. 
and then he makes some application. So let's look at this. In verses 10 and a half through 12, he's going to show them that the power of sin has been taken care of to the degree that they don't need to be led astray. They don't need anything else. They don't need to take any vitamin supplements in the ancient Near East. I, I shouldn't have said it. I take some vitamin supplements. They're not bad. I need to dig myself out of that hole. I, just You don't need, you got Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need, okay? You don't need any additional power. He's taking care of it. Now, I will say this. Verses 10 through 12 are very complicated. They're extremely complex, and different people understand this text. They interpret it, you know, a little differently. Uh, some people do, because you're dealing with circumcision and baptism, water baptism, and how all this relates to Jesus. I mean, you could spend a whole semester on these verses, but let's see if we can simplify it. So, what most scholars think is that in 10 and a half through 12, he is uh, preempting the idea that, that Jesus isn't sufficient. His power isn't enough, and so he's going to prove that Jesus is enough. 10 and a half through 12. He, Jesus, he's the head over every power and authority. He reigns supreme. Now, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. Okay, stop there. In him you're circumcised. So the reason, most likely, he's bringing up circumcision is that there were Jews in Colossae that were insisting that it's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus the kosher laws. It's Jesus plus these extreme fasting practices, okay? He's going out of his way to say it's not Jesus plus anything. Certainly not Jesus plus circumcision. And he's going to prove to them through some um, helpful argumentation that circumcision is no longer required. Ten and a half through twelve. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised, but with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead, that is a mouthful. Can we agree that that is a mouthful? I think the majority of scholars believe that what Paul is saying is you don't need physical circumcision because you were spiritually circumcised when you were baptized. Okay? He's talking to first-generation believers. He's talking to people that have heard the gospel as adults, they've trusted in Christ, and they were baptized. He's saying to them, you don't need circumcision because all that circumcision pointed to occurred when you trusted in Jesus and were baptized. So, okay, take a sip of your coffee if you need to. Um, if I could, I really would quiz you afterwards to make you nervous so that you'll listen. This is not a time to phase off or glaze over or think about lunch. Because one of the challenges is don't 
leave this to the clergy to be the experts. God has given his word to his people. Okay? You need to take responsibility and put in the sweat equity of trying to understand this. Because from Paul's perspective, this is life-changing. There's a lot on the line. Like Robbie said, if, if the Nicene Creed didn't go a particular way, things could be very different. Paul was not, I mean, he, you know, he wasn't in chains in a dungeon, but he was under house arrest in Rome. That's not where he wanted to be. He would rather have been visiting the churches, shepherding his people, but he's in a form of house arrest. He's not doing that so that the people of God would not dig into what he's saying. So I want to say this in love and graciousness, but we need to be students of the word. So please try to follow me. Please dial in as we talk about this. What he's saying here is, so I'll ask you, it's a rhetorical question you don't need to answer, what did circumcision represent, among other things, in the Old Covenant? When the bloody foreskin was removed in circumcision, that symbolized the removal of sin. The bloody foreskin, the bleeding of the flesh, it symbolized purification and the removal of sin. Even though the child wasn't necessarily saved at the time of the circumcision, that's what circumcision represented. It represented forgiveness. He's saying when you trust in Jesus Christ and you engage in water baptism in his context, what does water baptism represent? It represents cleansing, forgiveness, purification. He's saying to them, you were circumcised, not physically, but spiritually when you were baptized. When you trusted in Jesus and you underwent water baptism. And what did that do? What does faith in Christ and water baptism, what does that whole thing represent? What does it accomplish? It says, second half of verse 11, your whole self ruled by the flesh was what? Put off. What that means is when you trust in Jesus and the glory of water baptism, like for adults in this context, that symbolizes Sin is no longer your master. When people trust in Jesus Christ, the domination of sin, the reign of sin in your life, capital R, is done away with. Sin survived. Sin remains. It's still present, but it's not your master. It's not my master. You don't need these other things to live the Christian life, Paul is saying. You have all the fullness of God in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit and the gospel. When you trust in him, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. The reign and domination of sin in your life is over, even though it's still present. We still sin. We now have new ability. We can live for Jesus in ways that we could have never if we were just a cultural Christian. Do you understand that? We have power. Like, when I grew up in the church... I was a cultural Christian. I was a check-the-box Christian. I was a Christmas and Easter Christian. I was a fire insurance Christian. Okay? Sin ruled over me. 
dominated over me because I was not a regenerate, saved believer until college. When I trusted in Jesus Christ and was saved by grace through faith, all of a sudden now, not perfectly, I had new ability, new power. This, the sun was a beautiful new color. The sky was a new blue. I wanted to love people. I wanted to serve Christ. You don't need anything else. We are people who love, you know, the latest fad. I'm as guilty as anybody else. The newest book, the newest technique. You don't need any of that. You need the power of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ by his spirit, through his gospel. That's what we need. You've got all the power you need in the gospel. Not only do you have all the power you need, the old man is done in a sense like he doesn't dominate you. The penalty has also been removed. So he's making a pretty persuasive case. Look at verses 13 through 15. So he's, you've got the fullness of God in verses 9 and 10 in Christ. The power of sin has been dealt with in 10 and a half, and now in 13 through 15, he talks about the penalty of sin is no longer relevant for God's people. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, what did God do? It's implied you've trusted in Christ by faith. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. Now, verse 14, this is interesting. It's kind of technical. He's canceled, when you trust in him by grace through faith, he forgave all your sins. He does this by canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. What are you legally indebted to do? You and I, we are born legally indebted or bound to be perfect. That's God's righteous requirement. Absolute, total holiness and perfection, that's what the standard is. We were born and conceived in sin. It was over before it started. We have absolutely no ability to meet that standard, so it is hopeless. When you trust in Jesus Christ by faith, that obligation is done. Do you understand that? The Christian doesn't have to meet that standard to be accepted by God. Why? Because Jesus met it for you. Jesus met God's standard. And so when God views his people, he sees Jesus' satisfaction of that standard. Jesus satisfied that standard on the one hand, and he paid for all of the times that you and I did not meet the standard. He did both. That's what's nailed to the cross, according to Paul in verse 14. Having canceled the legal charge of indebtedness, he was perfect for you and me. The end of verse 13, he forgave all of our sins. He's taken it away, nailed to the cross. Verse 15, so interesting. How does this follow? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? He's borrowing from like Roman practice of a conquering general coming in the city, victorious, crowds, you know, in celebration. What was it that would follow the Roman 
emperor, you know, his adoring fans, but who else would be behind him? The people that he had conquered were following behind him. They were being made a spectacle of. The people that had had the audacity to rebel against Rome. They've been defeated. They're following now and the victory celebration, the objects of scorn and ridicule. Paul is saying, that's what happens in the gospel. Because what do, when you look at the term powers and authorities in verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, the powers and authorities are spiritual powers and authorities. What is Satan, among other things, what is his, um, what is his primary aim? He is our adversary. He's also the great what? Starts with an A. Accuser. His power flows from his accusation. He accuses Paul Kruger and Chris Bennett and David Ray and Pamela Clellan. He accuses them of violating God's law and having no basis to be accepted by God. And what Jesus comes along and does is he takes care of all of that so there's no basis of accusation. There's no more domination of sin over us. The penalty has been paid. Satan has been defanged, as it were. You don't need anything else. Okay, let's go to the end. I think I can summarize this for us. Go to panel five. Let me just read this. And once you understand this, it makes all the sense in the world. Here's his premise. If you have all the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, if you have all of that, if he's delivered you from the domination of sin, if he has freed you from the penalty of sin, why in the world are you listening to these people who make up these things and tell you that you have to do it to get to heaven? Why do you let them bully you like this, given what you have in Christ? Look at verse, verses 16 and 17, which really kind of summarize all that's going on. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. There were these, probably these Judaizers that were there that were saved, believe in Jesus, plus do all these Old Testament Jewish practices. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath, Okay, he's saying, you don't have to do the Feast of Tabernacles. You don't have to do the Feast of Pentecost. You don't have to do all these Old Testament rituals. You don't have to be circumcised. Why? What were those things in the Old Testament economy? Paul says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The kosher laws were a shadow of the things to come. The kosher laws were to teach you about separation and holiness. Now we've got the reality. We don't need those Jewish practices anymore. God has made one new man out of Gentile and Jew. We don't have to do all of these old covenant things. Those things foreshadowed Christ. He continues on. Go to verse 20. Since you died with Christ... 
to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. We don't know exactly what that refers to, but the rest of it kind of makes sense. Here's the question. He asks in verse 20, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Now that's helpful. That makes it more clear. The world says, these false teachers say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, all of these Old Testament practices, kosher laws, all these things, they added more things on top of that. Why are you listening to them? You've got Christ. You've got freedom in him. Look at verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. You know, they may be tempting. And they may seem to have rhetorical power. They don't. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. People are making these things up. They are, they, are, they are laying them out there by their own authority. It says their false humility, their harsh treatment of their body, probably like a misunderstanding of fasting, like you have to almost exist in a state of fasting. But he says this at the end. This is the key. Don't listen to all these things. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgements. They can't help you in the Christian life. They can't help you look more like Jesus. There's only one thing that can help you look more like Jesus, faith and repentance in Christ, trusting in him, knowing his word, being around his people, this table. This is a visible sermon. This is an experiential sermon. When you taste and experience the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith, he changes you. The centrality, the supremacy of Jesus is what we need. It's not about the clergy. It's not about the pastors. It's not about the PCA. It's about Jesus Christ, beloved. That's where he wants our focus and hope. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your graciousness and your loving kindness. Father, we are a people who, like sheep, tend to wander. Our focus gets distracted. We look at so many other things. Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to believe and operate on the basis of that we have all the fullness of God in Christ Jesus, that all the beauty and wonder of the gospel is bound up in him that we receive by trusting in him through the power of his Holy Spirit. Keep our eyes on him. Help us to focus on him and trust him and love him more all the days of our life. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.